Oh, Lord, Father, I just want to thank you that we have just such a great church family uh, that were so encouraging of one another. And uh, thank you for the worship team who did. They just really set this table where we can just come and hang out with you and hear your heart. Um, there's no better place than that, no better place than in your presence. Uh, and this morning as we, we open up your word, uh, I just pray that uh, you would challenge each one of us, because I know that, Father, you're always calling us up, you're never calling us out. And I just pray, Father, that this morning we will go away going, oh, I heard God, I, I, I want more. Amen. Uh, so in recent months, we've heard uh, two kind of big words for Upper Heart, oh, sorry, for Awaken for here in Upper Heart. Um, one of them when Graham was here, and that's the one that's really stuck with me, is that Upper Heart is ours for the taking if we want it. Uh, and the other when Matt Lansdowne was here, he said, uh, was it Jerusalem has an upper room, but New Zealand has an upper heart? Um, great words. Uh, but it's the one that Graham said that has really stuck with me the most. Um, that second line anyway, the if we want it. Upper heart is ours for the taking if we want it. Uh, so I've been pondering sort of since conference especially, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for me? So what does it mean for me as a follower of Jesus, as a leader, being part of this church community, being part of this hut valley? Um, I know we talk about upper hut a lot, but I'm from lower hut. So uh, <laughs> yeah, the valley. <laughs> There's a lot of lower huttians here <laughs> at Awaken. Just two. <laughs> the noisiest ones. Uh, so do we actually want to see this valley saturated in the love and hope of Jesus? And I've been thinking about what would I sacrifice for that? Um, what am I prepared to do for that? Um, am I prepared to sacrifice my comfort, uh, my time, my convenience, my agenda, my finances, my sleep? <laughs> Um, when God shows up, it's often quite messy, and we talk about that at church. I've heard Michael share it on stage, but I don't know if we're actually prepared for it to be messy. We kind of want God to show up, and we want it to be kind of tidy. It's kind of often not how he operates. Um, you know, are we prepared to love people who have got baggage? I've got baggage too. I've been loved. But sometimes we just decide it's a bit hard, and we kind of bail out. Um, on Sunday night at Awaken You. Um, we talked about relational nutrients and the stuff that we all need to thrive relationally. Um, and there's this idea that, you know, often we want to get people from A to B. We want to get people sort of through pain and, and tidied up. And let's get them really quickly to being healthy. But actually, Jesus often sits with us in the A. <laughs> he gets down in the dirt with us. Um, but too often we're trying to get people to the B really quickly, and when they don't get there quick enough, we kind of, we, we, we hands off, and oh, they're going to make better decisions for themselves. So are we prepared to sit with people in the dirt? Um, I heard someone preaching once, and they talked about Jesus prescriptions, and I'm pretty sure that everyone here has had a Jesus prescription at some point. You've shared something that's going on in your world, and it's a bit painful, and they've just been like, have you been praying? Have you been reading your Bible? You just need Jesus. Not wrong, but often not what you need in the moment. Sometimes you just need someone to sit down in the dirt with you who says, hey, you're okay with me and I will walk this with you. And that's what Jesus did with the woman caught in the act of adultery. And you know, I'm reading at the moment with a few other mad people. I think Ayla might be winning, maybe Suzanne. Uh, reading the Bible in a month. Um, 
I'm behind. <laughs> Straight up, I'll, I'll announce that one. Um, but, you know, in Leviticus, it says that, you know, when a man and woman are caught in adultery, they both get um, punished for it. But in um, John 8, it's the woman that gets bought, you know, hauled in, um, and Jesus is asked, you know, what, what do you do with this woman? And Jesus, he just loves her. He gets down in the dirt. So we don't feel like we belong until we're known and accepted um, and it's cheap acceptance, to only love, cheap acceptance to only love those who look like us. And I think we're really guilty of that in the church. Sometimes we're really friendly with those that look like us, but we're not very friendly with those that don't look like us. Sorry, I'm going quite fast, aren't I? It's all right? <laughs> all right. Um, so there's a poem that was written by a guy called Lawrence Tribble um, just before the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Uh, and it says, One man wakes, awakens another, second one wakes his next-door brother. Three awake can rouse a town and turn the whole place upside down. Many awake will cause such a fuss, it finally awakes all of us. One man wakes with dawn in his eyes, surely then it multiplies. And I'm really challenged by that. What if it actually does only take one person to kind of set off a bit of a revolution? And if that's the case, what's my responsibility? You know, do I actually want to see this valley saturated in the love and hope of Jesus? Yeah, I do. But sometimes I wonder if I want to see it at the, at the sacrifice of others. Or others, I don't know how to word that. Uh, I don't want to necessarily sacrifice myself. And I think we all get like that sometimes. We want to see it, but are we actually willing to pay the cost? So upper heart is ours for the taking, if we want it. So yeah, revival, it starts with me first. um, And I think we all need that in our hearts. Um, Who became a Christian as a young person? Is there anyone? Yeah, when I know that when I got saved, there was a song... Delirious called History Maker. I remember being 15, like, yeah, I'm going to be a history maker. Uh, Then suddenly you're married, you've got three kids, you've got a mortgage, uh, and safety and security is kind of the thing. And it's like, man, where did that radical 15-year-old go who was, uh, you know, 15, who was preaching to my English class, you know, about fire and brimstone and hell, and uh, I had my theology quite wrong back then, but that's okay. (laughs) But where, where is that spirit? I think we get so stuck in our security, and we don't want to risk our comfort for Jesus. Um, And so from that, I've been thinking a lot about Pentecost. Holy Spirit shows up to 120 people, and like by the end of the day, there's 3,000 added. Um, That's a lot of people to baptize. (laughs) They met daily to pray together, to eat together. They'd sell what they had to make sure that no one went hungry. They'd be imprisoned, and they'd be killed. That was a heavy cost for the early church. Uh, in ways that we couldn't imagine. Um, when we did the seven letters to the churches, you know, we heard that um, often people would have to choose, are you in a trade guild so that you could actually you know, work? Um, or would you not be in a tra- With the trade guilds, they would uh, have to go to the temples and you know, there's temple prostitutes and sacrifices and all this awful stuff. So they had to decide, would they be in a guild, have security, go to those places, or would they stand firm for Jesus uh, and risk not being able to feed their family? Like, that was a really big decision people had to make. Um, but what happened, the good news spread like fire to the ends of the earth because these people were so sold out. Um, so where did our comfort become more important? 
Um, on the Open Doors website, it says that 11 Christians every day are killed for their faith. Still, people are being killed for their faith. But where people are being killed for their faith is where it is growing the most. So to see our hearts saturated in the hope and love of Jesus won't require our lives, but it will require our lives. Um, but we're getting comfortable. So what does the Bible have to say? <laughs> um, so in John 10, 12, it says, The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. We are called in the book of Luke to count the cost of being a disciple. Uh, I said yes to Jesus when I was 15. I was at home, had my little Gideon's Bible I received in third form, prayed the little prayer that was in the back of it and wrote my name and, and the date. Um, got baptised a few months later, and then a couple of months after that, it was summer, um, and I backslid. And uh, I was thinking during the week, this word backsliding is actually really unhelpful, but that's the word I, I placed on my story, uh, that I backslid. What is that? And, and I look back and I think, that girl was just a 15-year-old teenager who was brand new in Jesus, uh, didn't really know what she was doing, and just made a bit of a mess of things. Uh, but anyway, I hid from God uh, for a couple of months because I thought I needed to have my life clean and tidy before I could pray, before I could read, uh, read my Bible. Um, so I just kind of avoided him for a couple of months uh, until I went to a youth camp called Faith Festival uh, in Cromwell. And I heard Andrew Kabbalah speak about the different voices that we listen to. And I realized that the voice I'd been listening to wasn't God. God doesn't put that shame and condemnation on us. He calls us up, not calls us out. Um, and then later during that camp, altar call, uh, listening to, uh, so that they were playing um, Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble, which at that point for us was a brand new song. I grew up in Southland. That song came out like five years prior, but it just took a wee while for music to reach the ends of the earth. <laughs> um, but, you know, I surrendered to God in, in tears and snot and repentance. And for me, that was the moment where my yes that I had said several months prior became real. Um, and we have those better yeses, that profound yes. And that was it for me when it became real for me. So in the Bible... <laughs> Uh, and at Pentecost, Peter was quite, he was the leader. Um, and, and I love the story of Pentecost and how suddenly he was able just to preach this mighty message. Um, but he had an incredible profound yes as well. But he kind of went yes, no, 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 yes. Uh, and that final yes before Pentecost was incredibly significant for all that he would do in the kingdom. When Jesus first called Peter at the start of his ministry, Peter was a fisherman and he said, follow me. And Peter walked with Jesus for three years. Um, but in Matthew 26, it's not long before Jesus um, was about to be, be arrested and crucified. Uh, have we got, I think this is, have we got the verses? Matthew 26. I'll just read them. Uh, Matthew 26, 31 to 35. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after you've been raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And all the disciples vowed the same. 
Uh, so most of you guys will know Peter's story. You know what's coming next. Um, I always thought that he was over ambitious. He might have been a bit of an early adopter, like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> he said he'd never desert Jesus. Jesus is shepherd that he would never desert him, even unto death. Uh, but we see in Luke 22, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the, the disciples couldn't even stay awake an hour to pray. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, they were, spirits were kind of willing, but, man, their flesh was weak in that moment. Uh, and later in Luke 22, it says, But Peter was adamant. Listen, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't you understand? I don't even know him. While the words were still in his mouth, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord, who was being led through the courtyard by his captors, turned around and gazed at Peter. All at once, Peter remembered the words Jesus had prophesied over him. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny three times that you, that you even know me. Peter burst into tears, ran off from the crowd, and wept bitterly. Who feels that? <laughs> like, not only is it denying Jesus, but like he's right there in the flesh, knowing that he is on his way to his death. Um, I feel that. Like, the shame and sorrow for Peter must have been huge. In John 21, we have the story of the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after his death. Um, he had already appeared personally to Peter, but we don't, we don't know that bit of the story. It's not in the Bible. Um, I'm kind of not surprised. Uh, the book of Mark, which is kind of like the gospel of Peter, um, there's this one bit where it tells how uh, someone cut the ear off the high priest's attendant when Jesus was arrested. And it just sort of says someone cut it off. Doesn't name it. John names it as Peter. I love that John's <laughs> always calling Peter out. Um, so I think that's probably whatever, you know, happened between Jesus and Peter in that first meeting. Like, Peter wasn't telling anyone, uh, not at least for us. The disciples knew that Jesus would appear in Galilee again. Um, I've often heard it preached, you know, that they went back to what they're knowing, you know, what they knew, instead of sort of staying firm for Jesus. But Jesus said, we saw that in Matthew 26, that he was going to Galilee. So they were there waiting for Jesus. They were positioned to see him. So they're out... Uh, fishing. Um, oh yeah, so Peter and, and the other disciples, so that yeah, they were all, they failed rabbi school, you know, 12 years old, they probably would have, you know, failed the tests that were required. That's why they're fishermen, that's why they're in the family business. I think that Jesus maybe needed to have this conversation in John 21 with Peter in front of the other disciples, just the same as when Moses um, sort of commissioned Joshua as the next leader over Israel, Jesus had to have this conversation so that they knew that Peter was who they were supposed to follow now. But I don't think it was an easy conversation for Peter. So when the disciples realized that Jesus was on the beach cooking them breakfast, nonetheless, I love that, Jesus comes with food. Um, <laughs> if you read your way through the book of Luke, like he's always like on his way to get food, leaving somewhere having foods, having food, like that's what Jesus is about. But Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. And it says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, so this is John 21, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. 
I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. So much in that. Um, I feel for Peter already in that when Jesus is addressing him, he's calling him Simon, which was his original name. Uh, but Jesus had changed his name to Peter, which means rock. And I wonder, was it a moment where maybe Peter didn't deserve to be called Peter? I don't know, was it that he was acting like Simon when he abandoned Jesus? But it's huge, hugely significant, I imagine, for Peter in that time. But Jesus gives Peter instructions, feed my lambs. Jesus, he is the shepherd, he is the good shepherd who had just laid his life down for his sheep. And now he's entrusting Peter with his flock which is huge for me as a mortal human being, that Jesus trusts us with his stuff, with his people. Um, I know, I can't even... <sighs> he did it for Jesus, he does it for us. <laughs> but then he tells Peter how he'll die. I don't know if that's need-to-know information. I don't think most of us would need to know. Uh, <laughs> this is how you're going to die. It's going to suck. Um, But then, straight after that, Jesus says to Peter, he says, follow me. And that's huge. Peter obviously responds, because the next we read of him is like Pentecost, and it's all on. Um, That's a profound yes. This call is going to cost your life. And Peter says, yeah, I'm in. And he does die uh, for the cause. Um, It said that he was crucified upside down, because he didn't think he was worthy of being crucified the same way as his Lord, which is huge. Uh, So back to the verse I read at the start. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Although Peter had plenty of enthusiasm, I don't believe he'd really made it past the hired hand uh, until his denial and restoration. Uh, you know, the word revival kind of means restoration too, and I think that was a bit what happened there for Peter. There was a revival. Man, revival, he moved from hired hand to shepherd. Uh, so last year I was faced with the question, am I all in? A few of us were asked, and I remember at the time being like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, I'm all in. Uh, and the more I sat with it, I was like, wait, actually, am I all in? Um, is my family all in with me? Um, we want to see this mission. We want to see the vision of this hut valley saturated in the hope and love of Jesus. But there was a cost to that. And my family, we had to actually stop and, and count that cost. I had to make sure that like, my identity and my security did not affect what I was going to do. I needed to know that. I had to be prepared to shift. If I'm in the wrong seat of the bus, uh, am I prepared to shift, even if, it, you know, even if I lose some financial security? Or even if, you know, is my identity attached to what I'm doing? Um, and I'm so glad that we wrestled with that. I'm so glad that we wrestled as a family with the cost. Because uh, this year's been a tough one. Um, there's been disappointments, there's been losses, um, it's been lonely, it's been a bit tough. Um, and so many times I've had to go back to God and be like, you sure, God, <laughs> you know, uh, am I in the right seat of the bus? Am I, am I on the right bus? You know, sometimes we've got to wrestle with these questions with God. And uh, every time he would bring me back, Uh, It's kind of the whole last standing orders. What was his last standing order? And for our family, it's to be planted and to be serving here. Um, 
And it's, it's those yeses that we keep needing to make over and over and over again. Um, and in Acts 10, Peter had to make another yes again. Peter got a bit caught in the whole, uh, you know, Jews are better than Gentiles, and he really struggled with that. Um, and God challenged him, gave him this crazy dream, and um, God challenged him, and Peter again had to say yes. And I love that uh, Peter struggled the same as the rest of us. He had to keep saying yes over and over and over again. He was human. He made some dumb mistakes, but again, he kept coming back. So are we hired hands or are we shepherds? It says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, You're a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a royal priest. The Passion Translation says that, um, that you would broadcast his glorious wonders throughout the world. That's what you're created to do. You're made in God's image. You are created to broadcast God's glorious wonders throughout the world. You are a royal priest and you're not called to just be a hired hand that would run when the pressure is on. And none of us are exempt. You know, we're called to be salt and light. We all know those verses. But it's in such an obscure spot in Luke 14. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. There is this passage about counting the cost. There is this little verse about being salt and light in the world. Uh, and then there is all these passages um, about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So, you know, we're to count the costs, we're to be salt and light, and then we're to see that which was lost restored. So what does that mean for us? We all have spheres of influence, and it's not all in the church. I think sometimes we get caught up in thinking that we need to be significant in the church. We are supposed to be significant wherever we are. It's about the kingdom, um, and so if you are, you know, wherever you are working, you might have a, a colleague who is bummed out about missing out on a promotion, or you might have a, a neighbour who is struggling to survive. You might have kids who are struggling at school. You might have an elderly parent who is, you know, fearful about the stage of life that they are in. You might have a friend that's just lost a relationship, whatever. Wherever you are, that is where you're called to be significant in that moment, to be salt and light, to shepherd people for the kingdom. Uh, and I read a quote yesterday from Brooke Fraser, which then Ayla tagged me in. <laughs> um, same wavelength. People aren't problems to be fixed. People are people. For us to walk alongside and journey with and help pick up the pieces with, and when they drop them again, to get back down and help them pick them up again. That's real love without condition and without expectation. So each of us has to decide if we're willing to say another profound yes. Upper hut is waiting for us. This valley is waiting for us. And it means being all in. Um, and it means shepherding some people that don't look like us. Um, sometimes shepherding people that don't smell like us as well. Um, there's a book called Drop the Stones by Carlos Rodriguez. Um, and he has a story in it that I want to read because when I read it, I was just like, oh, oh, I get it. <laughs> um, so it says, Robert was always hanging out at the traffic light and he always smelled like death. He used to have a job, a family, and access to a shower, but now he had nothing. No home, no bank account, and no dignity. An addiction to alcohol owned Robert, and, like a slave master, it drove him to that traffic light. His daily plan was to earn a living by begging in the streets of Kimwe in Puerto Rico to see if another, enough people in his tiny town felt pity he never felt when he had been the one breaking at the traffic lights beside the homeless asking for change. At night, with his nickels and dimes, Robert would buy the liquid that would help him forget. 
40 proof was almost strong enough to erase the reality of his tragic life on the streets. That specific traffic light was less than two minutes from our church. It was the exact turn that would indicate proximity to the house of God, and yet to that house, Robert never came. Almost every day we would encounter each other, and almost every day I prayed that the light would stay in my favour so that I could drive on by. The days when God would not answer my prayer, I would give Robert all 90 seconds of my attention before the red turned green. Some days I would get slightly angry with Robert. I would never tell him that, of course, but I expected him to do something about his condition. I would whisper to myself, he should know better, he should try harder, it's up to him what happens next. Yes, God, you love him, but he needs to love himself. Then I would smile, roll my window down, throw a few quarters into his plastic cup while saying, bless you, and then drive to, a church, drive to church to do the will of God. After months of people inviting Robert to join them for the Sunday service, one couple was successful. A young man and wife would take Robert to a restaurant for a weekly meal. Eventually they took a more personal step. They brought him to their home for rice and beans. They did not stop there. Soon they started to buy him groceries and take him to see the doctor. This couple purposefully did not invite him to church. Instead they became the church to him. In due course, Robert joined them for their Sunday routine at church. It was close to a spot on the street anyway, and the air conditioning provided a welcome break from the heat and the shame. The first time Robert entered the church, I noticed him right away. I could see him from afar, and honestly, it was impossible not to recognise him. I wanted to be kind and prove that I was a cool pastor and a loving Christian, so I made my way over to him. Before I got close, the odour that radiated off him was more than I could handle. I gave him a short handshake, but as soon as we were done, with a half smile on my face and trying my best to be discreet, I began a desperate search for hand sanitizer because who knew where those hands had been? Robert kept visiting our building and he started to engage in the full church experience. He would greet people, close his eyes during worship, and even responded to the preacher's invitation. He prayed the sinner's prayer on multiple occasions. Per our theology, salvation for his soul seemed guaranteed. But Robert was still lost on the streets, unsaved from himself. After months of having Robert among us, he began to behave like a proper, proper church member. And at church, that meant moving to the front during ministry time and waiting to be touched by God. There he was, smelly, broken, and yet expectant. And it was in that place that Robert encountered true love. You see, there was a British girl who would sit next to me, and she always smells amazing. She could barely understand the songs or the sermons because she was still learning Spanish, so she would ask me to translate for her. And even though it was my duty as her husband to make it easy for her to come to church with me, I would quickly get tired of repeating the words and ask her just to pray. And pray she did. It was one of those days while talking to Jesus, she felt a compulsion to go to Robert and give him a hug. Slowly but confidently, she approached him. Wanting to be obedient to God without making the man feel uncomfortable, she asked Robert in her broken Espanol, can I give you a hug? The six foot six homeless man nodded yes, probably thinking it was another one of the courteous three second hugs these Christians keep giving him while holding their breath. Catherine smiled, raised herself like a graceful ballerina and wrapped her arms around Robert's dirty neck. My wife then held on to him for more than 20 minutes. She squeezed him as if she was hugging me or her dad or Jesus himself. Her calf muscles worked hard as she determined to stay in that position, tiptoeing for the hug. It was like she was convinced that this one act would make up for every unkind word that Robert had ever heard, as if one embrace could convince Robert to stop drinking, sinning, begging, limping. 
She held on to this man like it was her favourite thing to do. As she breathed in her stench, all she could smell was the fragrance of the Redeemer. While she embraced his wounded body, she could feel herself being healed. And watching her doing it with such grace convicted me. Catherine was Christ, Robert was the adulterer, and I was the religious leader. When will I ever learn? Previously, I had tried my best to convince Robert to change his lifestyle. I spoke with him on multiple occasions about improving his condition. I invested time into prayer, asking God to lead him into the way of real freedom. My strategy was to use godly principles, human plans, and the pious language I was acquainted with, but he still looked the same, begged the same, and drank the same. It wasn't until that warm embrace that things turned. We never saw Robert again. We didn't see him on the streets or in the church. Why? Because he decided to go back to his family. Then he entered a rehabilitation program. Robert moved on to a different sort of light, a more divine and gracious one. He sent us a message a few months later. He was clean, happy, and connected. It was the hug he kept saying. It was Catherine's hug. In the captivity of my wife's arms, a drunkard became intoxicated with acceptance. There he encountered the fragrance of liberty. There my wife enjoyed the aroma of obedience. And there I stumbled into the stench of my pride. Mother Teresa once said, if you can't do great things, just do little acts of love. I think she knew a thing or two about Jesus. So does my wife. And one day I hope to smell like them both. As the Bible says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Long story, but good, eh? Yeah. Who's been guilty of, I've been there with church and and people that, we've got to start loving people that don't look like us, who don't smell like us, um, and not always be in such a hurry to get them fixed up, to not be such a hurry to say, hey, I'll pray for you, good luck, but actually to sit with someone in it, so that they know, we say, um, uh, four things we used to have up on the wall here, you do belong, you can live free, you do have purpose, and you are significant. People aren't going to get to knowing that they're significant unless they know that they truly belong. Um, And if we keep just passing people over, people need to know that they are known. Um, I'm going to love people. Uh, So can I be really clear that I haven't arrived, though, as well? Need to just be really honest on that. Um, On Friday afternoon, I had kind of a bad day, and so Ian uh, took me out um, to go have a hot chocolate and, and do some shopping, and we were driving to the hut and it was raining um, and Ian suddenly, I'm not paying attention, I'm looking at my phone and he pulls over um, and there's this guy walking, tattered all up, walking um, uh, Harcourt Drive uh, and Ian's like, you want to ride? And the mate's like, yeah, sure, you know. Stinky, he stunk actually, yeah. <laughs> Stinking out the back of my car. His name was Peter. <laughs> Ian thought that was really funny. Um, <laughs> anyway, and we're driving and it turns out that... Uh, I don't know the whole story, but his missus was at Avalon Park with the car, but the pit bull's locked in the car, and he's got the keys. Um, and I can see Ian's brain's ticking over. He's like, how can I pray for this person? You know, how can I you know, bring them some value? Um, we're chatting to Peter, and we get to Avalon Park, and we, we find his missus, as he called her. Um, she stands up from behind the car, and she's got makeshift tourniquets on her arms. And I think Ian had missed that. And I was like, and they're really angry at each other because he'd walked halfway to Stokes Valley because he didn't know how to find Avalon Park. And, and I'm like, I'm thinking, this is not a great situation. And I'm suddenly understanding what his relationship is to her. Um, and thinking, this is all not really... But Ian, he's out of the car. He's wanting to... <laughs> My sensibilities going, this is really not safe. We should, we should go. Uh, we don't want to be dead. No, uh, with Ian, he's always seeing the person, not the situation. Um, 
we didn't actually get to pray with them or anything. They were way too volatile for that. But, you know, we got to be friendly people who picked him up off the side of the road. He said he didn't think anyone would, you know, pick him up. So, um, yeah, I just love that Ian does that. And he's always picking up people in his truck. Um, yeah, he's always seeing the good in others. And so I want to be more like the good shepherd. I want to hang in there with people. I don't want to just be a hired hand who goes, ah, I'm out. Because, you know, when, when, when the shepherd scatters, you know, the people scatter, you know, so we need to be a good shepherd. Uh, Gregory Boyle, who some of you will remember from that awesome video that Peter, Hugh, uh, Peter McHugh shared at conference, um, has this quote, you stand with the least likely to succeed until success is succeeded by something more valuable, kinship. You stand with the belligerent, the surly, the badly behaved until bad behaviour is recognised for the language it is. The vocabulary of deeply wounded and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. Um, and I think when we catch that, people will know that they belong here and then we can actually turn this valley upside down. Um, and finally, so for me this year, part of this, and I love that Polly talks so much about coming to God and, and reading your word and praying. For me this year, I sort of have made a decision, like if God's going to show up, so am I. Um, and that's been a few different things for me. Um, Tuesday mornings, I come down here and I pray by myself before I start work. And um, sometimes I literally have to be in here an hour and a half before I, my brain shuts off enough that I can actually hear God. Sometimes you've got to stick it in. Um, on Tuesday or Wednesdays, um, we always pray with Mary and Tracy. Um, it's always an open prayer time. Um, it's so great to be around women who are strong with prayer. Um, Sundays, our gathering, we want to be here with the worship when the worship team are laying the table, like, I want to be here for that every week. Like, if God's going to show up, so am I. Um, and on Sunday nights, we have this half-hour amazing worship time and prayer time every Sunday night um, before Awaken You. Um, and I love that when we, we get into that, I don't know what God's going to do, but he's always doing something. Um, and it's not about religion. And I think that needs to be made really clear as well with what Polly was saying before. It's not religion. It's about rhythms. It's about positioning ourselves. Peter and the disciples, they were in Galilee because they knew that's where Jesus was going to show up. So we need to put ourselves in places where we can hear God's heart for us and God's heart for, other, God's heart for others. Um, so we're going to do communion. <laughs> um, yeah, Jesus is our shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's not a hired hand. He proved that on Calvary. And when it comes to you, you're all in. Um, and if you were to be sitting on a beach like with Jesus, like Peter did, what would that conversation be like? Is there shame, fear, or anger holding you back from having a conversation with Jesus? He's got broad shoulders. He is happy to listen to you. He's going to show up. Um, so as we come into communion, worship team can come on up. Um, I just encourage you to sit with Jesus for a bit, remembering all that he's done for you, um, and maybe have a conversation with him, like where is it that he is calling you to be a shepherd? Um, is there someone that you need to love? Um, you know, they say the hardest uh, person to lead is yourself. Maybe you've got to shepherd yourself a little bit, and that's what I do in, in showing up. If God's there, that's where we'll show up. Um,